0: So welcome to Philosophy Voice, the podcast of the Center for Ethics at the University of Baltimore. Today, we are talking to Vina Das, who is a Krieger Eisenhower Professor of Anthropology at the Johns Hopkins University. My name is Nora Hammerlein, and I'm with us here, I also have my colleague, Joseph Wienicke-Leiden. So welcome. Thank you.
1: Yes, welcome. Uh, Vina, thank you so much for speaking with us today uh, in, in this beautiful morning. I wondered if we could just start talking a bit about um, your your trajectory, uh, your academic and intellectual trajectory. We're all very impressed by how deeply grounded you are in philosophy, um, yet you're also situated in anthropology. So we just wanted to hear a little bit about um, if you chose or how it happened that kind of your academic formal home is in anthropology, and then you kind of are, are so well-read and well versed in other disciplines as well. Well, thank you
2: for having me first and foremost. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I mean, it's a little difficult to answer your question because, uh, uh, because, in some ways, this is not a result of any major decisions on my part. Um, and also, it's not my relation is not to philosophy in general but to some very specific lines of philosophy, and they come really because, um, you know, I started reading Wittgenstein because he just interested me a lot, and then um, a whole lot of people around him, or the commentators, uh, and I did start by working out on the Wittgenstein workbook by uh, Black, and you know, the... Um, that older generation of Wittgensteinians because I was... uh, Not because I ever thought that I would bring philosophy into what I was doing. Um, Really, just because I I liked it very much. And then it began to kind of make sense to um, see the... um, the way in which one could find resonances, I was also very interested in uh, Indian philosophy, and that part I haven't been able to bring in as much, ironically, because, uh, you know, because the uh, there is this assumption that texts belong to particular traditions, and therefore um, you know, it would be okay if I was an endologist, And actually, I'm, you know, not too bad a Sanskritist because I was trained in Sanskrit also. Um, but it's quite interesting to me when some doorways open, when can we say the door is a little open. Um, and so maybe anthropology actually does allow... Um, more eclecticism than, say, a discipline like economics probably would, or even I would say maybe analytical philosophy would. Um, But there was a um, a kind of... I think it's partly literary criticism which opened these kinds of pathways to, um, you know, to think about, because of the idea of the centrality of the text, and for a while... Um, because of Gibbs's influence, um, the idea of society as text became very, very um, uh, popular. I don't agree with that notion. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's actually quite the opposite of what Wittgenstein says, for example, around forms of life. But it opened people up to thinking that this is, um, you know, this could be an important avenue. And then I think in 1991, probably. Um, um, One of the anthropologists, Van Daniel, um, who was on the editorial board of Annual Review of Anthropology, decided to have a series asking an anthropologist to think about one philosopher and the influence of that philosopher, or if not the influence, then the ways in which that could inform anthropological theory. I think his idea was some kind of search for foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in philosophy is not because of search for foundations, not because I think philosophy will provide us with a the theory which anthropology lacks, but just because I find very interesting resonances between these kinds of philosophers mm-hmm. and anthropology. OK. Yeah.
1: Can I just follow up on one of the ideas you mentioned? Um, you were talking about texts not belonging to different traditions. And I know I come from the, the context of the United States where issues of who owns culture, who owns texts, um, some very questions that are really well-grounded in important issues, but especially around cultural appropriation. Um, how do you, as somebody who is uh, engaging in intellectual labor, kind of deal with those questions where... We can say a text doesn't belong to a culture, and yet there are a lot of politics involved and important histories involved with making those moves.
2: I mean, Again, I can understand where this uh, idea about cultural appropriation is coming from. Um, you know, after it is, you know, part of the impetus was from indig- indigenous groups who felt that their, um, their traditions were being taken up and, uh, you know, the, the, and including not just traditions, but including material artifacts and bodies and heads and so on. Um, so I can understand where it is coming from. Where it is going, I'm not very sympathetic <laughs> to, because, um, you know, uh, so it would be very hard to say it, that there is this kind of homogeneity to a particular culture in which you can say... And that, by the way, I would say is equally true for European texts, that it's not as if uh, one can understand Schopenhauer without his um, encounter with Indian thought. Um, so so I, I always had difficulty in thinking these are Western texts and these are mm-hmm. Eastern texts, because, you know, because there was a huge amount of traffic between these. So, I'm not very sympathetic
1: to the idea that I feel like, you know, as far as the Indian texts are concerned, I wish more people would appropriate them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This brings us nicely, I think, to the question of Stanley Cavell, who's a very strong presence in much of your work, and and I I suppose a strong philosophical inspiration, uh, who's also well-known for bringing, or, or finding philosophy Uh, everywhere and in many different locations and bringing in and not minding boundaries but rather um, using them as, well, taking the challenge. Um, Would you like to think a bit about your relation to Stanley Cavell or how he has, sort of, where or how he has has come to to sort of influence your thought?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think it was an accident um, that I... Um, got to read Stanley Cavell because I actually didn't know of his work till the 1990s. Um, because I think I was much more tied into thinking about Wittgenstein in relationship to questions around Russell and Fraga and, you know, within the analytical tradition more. Um, Stanley cavell had, uh, had a great... You're absolutely right. It's almost like a soul capture. It's not just a... Uh, You know, not just that, oh, I find him intellectually interesting. I found him um, very important because um, in some ways his... One is, as you say, that he finds philosophy in other places. So, you know, his questions of how does literature inherit the question of skepticism and then how does uh, Hollywood cinema inherit the question of skepticism. So one of the interesting things was that uh, very often people think that one part of Stanley Pruvel belongs to film studies and that's where they'll put Pursuits the of happiness or um, yeah, contesting tears um, you know the world view and the other part belongs to philosophy where they will put claim of reason or quest for the ordinary or you know other books of that kind um, and I always respect that it was a kind of of necessity in his writing to find philosophy outside the officially recognized uh, canon and outside the officially recognized ideas of what it is to do philosophy. Um, So yeah, I encountered him first because uh, I think I'd written a paper on pain and the editor uh, of Daedalus was a very kind man Uh, and I think very generous but he was very baffled by that paper and so when I say he was very kind I mean he didn't just think oh I'm the editor, I can just say no he actually sent it to Stanley to say would he review it for the journal and um, Stanley couldn't have a clue of who I was but he read it and he um, you know he wrote about a six page commentary on it which was also published later in Deadly's um, and so I think um, it was that kind of curiosity where I think Stanley felt that he could suddenly find in anthropology, um, you know, a kind of real resonance with the kind of questions that he was dealing with. And I certainly found that places where, um, you know, it was hard to find um, um, ways of thinking about that within the anthropological canon. So, for example, people I could have taken, say, Gears, but then I would have followed in a pretty conventional route, I think, about interpretive anthropology or around the question of society being text and being, uh, you know, something that could be interpreted. I felt that there was something very different in Wittgenstein and, well, really helped me his writings, uh, but he also was very generous in reading uh, almost everything I wrote for a long time. Um, and so, uh, so that was like a marvelous kind of uh, blessing, if you will, um, you know, of finding some authentication for what was an intuition and a disquiet and even I would say a certain feeling of suffocation.
0: One of the concepts that you use, uh, the concept of the everyday, is one also used by Cavell, or perhaps derived from Cavell, uh, although of, all of course I mean you do different things with it, but it, it's, an, it's a curious uh, concept in the sense that it it's captures the air we breathe, the, the world we live in, uh, something that is perfectly open to view, but yet difficult to see, and this dynamic seems very central to many of your studies. Um, how, how do you think about this, this and, and your sort of inheritance of this concept from Cavell?
2: Yeah, I uh, think that's a fantastic question because from my side, uh, I said about this feeling of suffocation, um, it partly came because, um, you know, I did want to write up my material on kinship and I didn't think I was studying violence. But it would keep coming up in all kinds of ways. And, you know, a lot of the work on the partition was in the mode of kind of gathering stories which then became horror stories, you know. And you could, because I'm not saying horror was absent. But there was a kind of mesmerizing effect of, uh, you know, being able to tell a story which was, you know, really shocking, which was horrible. Um, and which had a real um, grip on the imagination of both scholars and in the in in the popular um, culture, in
0: um, where on the one hand
2: nobody would talk about the partition, on the other hand whatever talk there was was in that kind of register of the dramatic and the horrible. Um, but because I had been working on on Hitship and finding this to be in a way, like a um, kind of watermark in the um, in the events that would happen, uh, that it took me some time to see that this was also about the partition, right? And so the everyday offered, it, and again, the everyday one, I had a paper earlier on, on this work which is called Masks and Faces, which was a perfectly good paper. But in that... I, could, I missed the fact that the betrayals and the tensions and the you know, sense of alienation that I was also showing as also the kinds uh, of care around gift-giving and so on um, were tied to that particular history. So I think it was not just the, the fact that it was the concept of the everyday. It was also the fundamental intuition that every day was lined by skepticism, which I think was so extraordinarily original, in my view. Uh, That is, I think, what, um, uh, you know, why this concept became so very important uh, to me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, so I I didn't think it was one concept among others. Well, I think it is a fundamental concept. Without that, its whole philosophy would fall. Um, and within that, I think one of the most difficult things for people to see has been the idea um, that, that, you know, that skepticism is not an extinguishable doubt. And so, um, you know, so really how to think about it as lining the everyday was something that uh, was very important. The other part which was very important was the way he inherits the idea of private language from Wittgenstein because it changed the picture of the interior. So when anthropologists wrote about emotion, they would usually do it by thinking about the terms for emotion. So the debates were basically around this thing that if you didn't have a word for anger, then did these people feel anger, right? Um, and, you know, one moment's reflection would show you that this is not so. And Ben said, of course, written that in his critique of the notion of worldview. That language is not something which which is important, but that you are not your how you see the world is not completely determined by the words, but by the way that one would think about being in language. So I think these were two or three very very important concepts through which um, the everyday world articulated for me. And it became very important for me because it allowed me to write in a particular register of voice that I was looking for.
1: Yeah, can you um, talk more about the idea of skepticism, especially as, uh, as uh, some of the listeners uh, might not know, we talked bit the last two days about uh, especially inordinate knowledge and poisonous knowledge. Um, and you're kind of talking about that, the skepticism every day and how it's not necessarily completely destructive. But then you also bring up these, these, the idea of inordinate knowledge and also this idea of poisonous knowledge that can occur in, I guess, charged situations. Um, can you just say a little bit more about how those uh, relate to each other in, in your thinking?
2: Yeah, this is... Um it's a very, I think it's a very interesting and challenging kind of question. Yeah. Um, I guess part of um, it relates to the idea that uh, that when you are in the grip of skepticism, I mean, we're not in the realm of the fade out, right? So we, we, we're we not, you know, anybody can kind of just doubt in mm-hmm. one way as a kind of, uh, you know, gambit in a kind of game of... Uh, playing skeptic uh, but here I think what, was rela- what what it was relating to was the kind of world annihilating doubt which can um, which had come because of the for me it came because of the idea in a certain sense during the partition violence that somewhere the, the notion of the human and the notion of life itself had been negated um, I did use. There's another writer who was very important to me, which is this Urdu writer called Saadat Hasan Manto, whose, uh, you know, whose uh, stories on the Partition are absolutely breathtaking. And uh, one of these stories, two of them actually figure off and on. One very, very uh, fundamentally called Koldo, um, you know, which was. It was a fantastic story of this girl who's been um, uh, abducted, and um, the uh, the father is trying to find her, and he talks to some young men who are social workers and who are going around trying to search for abducted women to restore them to their families. And they do. He describes her in detail. They clearly do find her. And the the last we see of that interaction is the, one of the young men giving her a um, you know a kind of big shawl scarf kind of thing because she's not wearing the veil and so she, so that she can cover herself. That's the last thing we see. The next we see is that she's in a hospital bed, and her father standing by her. And, uh, you know, the doctor comes in and the room is uh, very stifling. So he looks at the window and says, open it. And immediately her hands go to her pants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the father shouts out in joy, saying, my daughter is alive, my daughter is alive. Um, And I had two different, you know, I had a first interpretation of it, to think that the father can't actually distinguish between um, what is living and what is dying anymore? Because clearly the girl has been raped so so much that the only command that she can hear is open it, right? Uh, but then I began to think more about the um, you know about her joyous statement: "My my daughter is my is alive. My daughter is alive." And the context of these stories at that time was that a girl would find somehow her way back home the parents would open the door and find, find her and know that she has been abducted and raped and has somehow escaped. And the only words that come out are, you know, why are you still alive? Right? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you dead? So in that, I'm not saying this is what happened. Actually, one of the things uh, that uh, this notion of the everyday did for me was to really try to see uh, what these stories were bearing. And then you'll find that, no, I mean, there were people who went out of the way to find their wives, so find to find their daughters, uh, you know, they did a lot of things to somehow overcome the idea that they had been dishonoured and so on. So there was a relation to the societal courts, but in a very different way than what the, you know, what the writing at that time had, um, you know, had imagined was happening everywhere. Uh, so then it became very interesting to me to think about this question of inordinate knowledge because one, this experience that I had of people never being able to talk. Now, I don't think this is because they didn't have the language or because of some fundamental inexpressivity. I came to the conclusion that there is a certain sense in which not allowing these words to circulate was seen as very important for containing the voices. Mm-hmm. Right, so that you don't want your words to become a curse on the world, yeah. and, and so, on. so this is not a scene of, uh, you know, a dramatic scene of forgiveness, but it is a scene of, um, you know, of trying to think how this kind of knowledge can be prevented, when, uh, you know, from prevented from becoming a curse on the world, so that yeah. the next generation does not have to constantly deal with it. Right, yeah. uh, and so these two concepts came to be joined in my work uh, I think in Cavell's work they've come to be joined by um, you know the, the kind of scene of uh, the winter's tale or something like the scene in a claim of reason in which uh, my doubt about the uh, existence of the other is not, not the Descartes kind of doubt it's about the question of can I accept the psychic existence of In my work, I think because of the fact that I had been working on this partition, it really came from um, both this kind of experience of listening to women and seeing that it was not a matter of inexpressivity. It was a matter of being able to pay attention to uh, the way that these expressions didn't come as full coherent narratives and that wasn't just because they were fragments or sketches, but because they were like, uh, you know, words which were pregnant with uh, with a whole kind of region of life, which could be shown or which could be expressed in these ways. But if you asked people any questions about it, they would immediately resort to, you know, very standard kinds of stories. Yeah. And so... Uh, I think that's the connection between uh, the way I think about skepticism and um, inordinate knowledge. And I will say that one maybe, um, um, maybe a small difference, but it could be a big difference, is that for, well, what gets violated is the human, right? in his notion of forms of life, where the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension are about uh, what he tends to think about life, but I think begins to think of it as biological. Whereas I take from Wittgenstein the notion of life as pervading everything, right? Pervading the notion of words. And, And Cavell has that. You know, he has this fantastic notion of saying how um, you know, how your statements can become frozen, slide-like. You are not behind those kinds of statements. Um, but very often, the, um, the idea of the vertical dimension, the dimension of life has been assumed to be biological life. Whereas for me, when I say that what could violated was life itself, I think that it becomes the inability to speak words that could be meaningful. It becomes an inability to trust anything. It becomes an inability to think that you have a psychic life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So interesting that though many of the things you write about are, are terrible, there is light in it and there is, that, there is hope. And I was thinking about the way that hope emerges in your Text is very different from how philosophers, generally, would construe hope. Because for us, I mean, it's very often about giving the normative account that would sort of the path forward. Um, but but I what, what I uh, see you, you're doing in in your like when you discuss your ethnographic work and is opening up the lives of these people and looking at their strategies of coping in a way which. Which is not, it would, it's clearly not merely descriptive because it sort of brings out the way, the sort of positive force in, in this sort of com- complex, also in strategies that might seem uh, deeply problematic from uh, this kind of busybody philosophy perspective. <laughs> so, so and, and, and the ways that people can sort of reconstruct their, their relations and sort of postpone or, or things that might not cannot be dealt with now or maybe just save the future generations from. there is one one concept also that um, comes up in in one of the texts that we have been reading for the seminars uh, here with you, uh, where you take up the notion of plural pasts, uh, which is uh, in relation to how literary text or how how the tradition or or religious tradition or, or stories can bring in different ways of reconstructing the past, also to reconstruct the present, and, and how that is actually something, it seems like that is something that people, plural past is something that people also have in their everyday life, so it's not just something that the anthropologist or the literary author or the historian or the philosopher do, but it's really something that people work with, um, how they tell their past is, is, is how they tell their present and how they sort of find ways of living together. Uh, in the future so so I was thinking about this notion of plural pasts mm. could you open that up for us
2: mm. I mean first I think you're an amazing reader because you see hope where um, you know I don't know how many people have commented on my work by assuming that I'm very drawn to suffering, I have a disposition, it must be a very unhappy disposition. (laughs) Uh, You know, and including one of my students who was doing something on joy and he was asked that if you are Bina Dasa's student, will she she permit you to do that? Uh, So that's quite interesting that you're able to do it. The reading conveys to you the fact that there is, I'm not making these uh, you know, not drawing people towards saying, "Look how miserable um you know life is, so it's not the part of the misreist kind of tradition um so that's actually very, very interesting um and relates to the because um, sorry. yeah because hope, uh hope is not um, um something which um here would be because you can of course get you know lectures by uh, by kinds of uh, prophets and saints of all kind about questions of hope and despair and so on. Uh, but here, hope is really um, almost like not a distant future towards which we are going, but it's very much part of the question. Of the present, that um, you know, within which this issue of plural past becomes very important, um, because of the way in which um, uh, people will also learn, in a certain sense, to think, to, to to think that this kind of register of voice is something which will allow our relationship to be resumed, or will allow us, despite all the hurts and disappointments and things, to go on. So if you are stuck with only one particular version of the past as the truthful one, and the rest of all being wrong, um, I mean, obviously, this question can also lead to violence by its own, right? You can create a particular version of the past which only has one pathway in the future. Um, But what I found quite interesting was the fact that, um, you know, it comes partly, I have to say, from the Hindu texts in which, uh, you know, when you read anything like an epic or, you know, uh, poetry in in Sanskrit, um, one of the things you will find is that every character has some aspect which will dawn at other times, may not be evident right there, right? Um, And that in some ways opens up the pathway to think that your relationships, even with the same person, are actually multiple relationships, right? Um, And that I think is the kind of, um, it's not that people could philosophize on it in that way, but they've they've received these traditions, they've grown up with these kinds of traditions. And so it's available to think that uh, it's possible that, uh, you know, that, there is a different past. I and mean, one of the stories in my ethnography that I still find very, very moving was a story of this woman uh, whose son, after great complications, got married to a woman he really said he loved. And his parents were very opposed to it, but he really more or less coerced them by saying, I'll commit suicide if you don't allow me to marry her. And so they get married. Um, the woman after two days (laughs) runs away with all the jewelry which has been given to her with her lover and the lover happens to be her brother's wife's brother so it's a very complicated situation within the kinship group you know they they go to the police station but there is this danger that they, the police will begin to accuse them of harassing the daughter-in-law because of the dowry act and so on so anyway you know she says "Cut, let's cut our losses she's taken away all her jewelry but you know the son is kind of heartbroken but they just decide that's how they need to live so it happens that this girl and her lover um, amass this huge amount of money but they blow it up completely within one year because they go and you know, live in the most fancy places and so on. And she gets pregnant and he abandons her at that time. Her parents are not willing to take her back. Her in-laws are not willing to take her back. But the parents say, okay, till the baby is born, you can stay here. This woman one day hears this sobbing on the footsteps of her house. A little small house. And she opens the door and she finds that her daughter-in-law with this baby is sitting over. She immediately shuts the door. Um, but the sobbing continues. And then she begins to think that this is just, you know, she said, it's not that I wanted to do it, but I couldn't bear to hear the baby cry. And she opens the door and brings her in. And, you know, she's kind of re-inhabitated within the household. Now, I just found it such an, you know, such an astonishing act of generosity, Right. But she said, I convinced my son that uh, he should get over it because he must have harmed her sometime in his past life, you know. And therefore, this is an act of reparation. So I asked her whether, you know, what did anything worry uh, her about it? And she said, Well, the thing that I'm very worried about is that my daughter-in-law is excessively obedient now to me, you know. So she really thinks that she owes, you know, some great, Favor to us, but I think she should just become more normal. Right? So I I I think that you know, only because she's able to think about karma and reincarnation and past lives, which allows a multiple kind of pathway to the moment, that that something like such an act of generosity becomes possible. It's not because of an acting of a named virtue. She's not setting out to be generous it's not because, you know, she thinks this is my pious self. She's almost acting against her will initially to actually take her in. So that's the kind of thing which I think goes completely unrecognized. Uh, You know, if we give either an overly normative account or we assume that um, you know, that these actions happen in pursuit of virtue. One of the things I imagine is that if you take a particular action, um, you know, if you suddenly go and draw somebody away from a dangerous situation, it's not because you are trying to be courageous. You are trying to save them. Others may say you are a very courageous person. So I find virtue ethics very wanting in this kind of situation. Does that
0: answer the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: fascinating. And can I ask a follow-up with that, just because I've um, dealt with virtue ethics and tried to look at it as a a language for trying to bring out um, aspects of someone's life or situation that's happening. Um, Because somebody could come to... go there and say, oh, you know, she has generosity, she's creative, she's this. And and, and also trying to acknowledge the tension between (laughs) what she really wants to do and then, you know, people could bring in language of responsibility or duty and whatnot. Could you say a bit more about... what you find in that language that might be helpful, but then also a bit more about the gaps that we need to kind of think about, that you feel like where it fails in a situation like that? I,
2: I'm not an admirer of virtue ethics yeah. at all. Um, you know, partly because uh, I think it's a very limited way of thinking about morality. Yeah. Um, so in this case, I think, yes, people may say it must be because she had a fundamental view about responsibility. But I think it's more that by how you act, you also learn to shape yourself, right? And this shaping of yourself, you know, you, you discover um, quite um, astonishingly extraordinary things about uh, you know, about how occult your relationship to yourself is in some way, right? For yeah. both good and bad. I mean, I think that's what, uh, uh, what was interesting to me. Now it's possible that a philosopher doesn't know how to deal with this, right? It completely yeah. unsettles our idea about what the poor are and what revenge is, and of course there are other cases in which somebody may not be able to do that. Um, and that's why this notion of uh, non-cruelty in the Mahabharata is so attractive to me because it's precisely about the fact that um, you know that sometimes your obligations happen on you because accidentally you come into a situation not because your position is now one uh, which you know you're a mother and therefore you should learn to be responsible to your children right but accidentally, I may learn that my life is actually tied up with somebody's life, which is uh you know which was not a given at the start. so how to live that in some ways, and that also requires um the generosity of everybody else around you. It requires a certain way of being attuned to each other in more ways than can be defined by. Uh, the pathways which would be set for us in relationship to the normal, mm-hmm. so-called moral vocabulary. And
1: That seems to tie a little uh, bit to your idea of indeterminate knowledge, as far as learning to live with what you know, what what happens, and you have to learn to live with that. Like you said, there are certain relationships where you realize, oh, this is me. <laughs> this is my life. It seems right. like, right. like absolutely.
0: Absolute. absolutely. But it seems like this way of looking fits very well into maybe not virtue ethics, but a broader context, including I mean people like uh, Iris Murdoch, of course Cavell, but mm-hmm. also Cora Diamond. And there's a, mm-hmm. a range of, of of philosophy that sometimes sort of ends up under the broad umbrella of, of virtue ethics. But isn't virtue ethics in like in the sense of virtue theory? Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean
2: that's where I find great resonances. Uh, in um, uh, I mean, there is a sense in which there are also interesting lines of difference. So in something like I don't formulate this as a sovereignty of the good necessarily, and you know, with Cara Diamond, I think I completely, I'm I'm completely in tune with her on. Um, You know, these questions about particularity and the questions really about how, um, uh, you know, that that wonderful description she has in which she takes from Tolstoy in which, uh, you know, it's that momentary glance of recognition of you as human in the context of the Nazi um, camps um, in which the moral moment, so to say, is located. Um, there's also, I think, something very interesting um, in the disquiet that she has. You know, the kind of disquiets in uh, relation to difficulty of reality, which uh, uh, again is a pretty difficult concept. It's been kind of appropriated too easily in a number of anthropologists' writing. But you know this idea of inordinate knowledge—that this is somebody you can imagine as a companion—but people can eat it without turning, um, you know, turning their um, eyes. Um, I, I think that's the register of philosophy where you are absolutely right that the um, that there is some resonance. But I was also very struck by the fact that, in some ways, the resources that are available in the Um, you know in some of the Indian traditions I think I'm not saying that these are actually followed um, by everyone but they form a kind of common sense in which you can very easily evoke such a thing not because you're a very religious person who's always believed in karma but at that moment it becomes something which is available at hand to even make sense to yourself of why
0: did you do this Mm -hmm. Talking about resources, it seems like um, I mean literature, is of course, one of the resources that you share with the philosophers, or that's a, but 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 it's clear that in this context of ethics, especially ethics after Wittgenstein, and this broader context of also virtue ethics, um, the the resources uh, used by philosophers are much more limited than I suppose the anthropologists' uh, resources, and they are often. Um, of the kind that you can access by uh, through a library, <laughs> so so it was very uh, interesting to hear something about how you think about fieldwork as a resource uh, in in addressing questions which are perhaps philosophical to their nature. Uh, there is, I mean, there's been even something of a in the broader Wittgenstein context uh, something even of a kind of taboo against um, importing um empirical research um but that's clearly not something I mean as an anthropologist that is that is what you are doing. That is the yeah yeah. yeah.
2: No, I mean I, I find um so I find both literature and um, ethnography um absolutely central to my work. I mean as I said I like thought experiments because sometimes they clarify something which is otherwise very, very nebulous. Uh, But but only for for a moment in the sense that it allows you to take the next step, so to say. But otherwise, I think the kinds of issues that I'm talking about, I wouldn't be able to talk about them if I was only doing, um, you know, something like symbolic logic or something like a propositional calculus in relationship to finding out. Uh, you know, or even doing virtue ethics, which assumes from the outside that they're named virtues, which are known. I mean, the challenge is in some ways to, um, you said earlier that description itself is um, a form of analysis. And that, I think, from Wittgenstein also, uh, this is a very important point. I think that he, he makes, Emerson makes, Cavell makes precisely that kind of a question of, you know, um, whether we really understand what is description, and so part of the whole process that I try to do is to say what what exactly is description. So anthropology always has, if it's good anthropology, in my opinion, it'll always have a surplus of description. Um, you know, and so when people who are very uh, like economists read anthropology, they get very um, Uh, quite startled by the fact as to why do you need to give so much detail? Why don't you cut off the (laughs) detail and come to what the main point is? But if your object of knowledge is not something which with very clear boundaries is not like a thing, but a kind of object, and if the object is life, then it seems to me that surplus is absolutely central to the way in which we would think about it, right? And to that extent, I... uh, you know, I, I don't think of the ethnography as an illustration of a philosophical concept at all. I, I think of the question of how to bring, uh, you know, bring concepts alive because they're embedded in the way in which um, forms of life are being
1: actually described. Yes. Yeah, could you, uh, with that, since you, you have... Um, have some possibly some moral philosophers out there <laughs> doing this work, listening to, to you. Um, what would you say to moral philosophy, to moral philosophers about how you personally think uh, the, the, the discipline, not even just the discipline, but the practices and the work that's being done um, could move forward in a way that you see is more productive, more interesting? Um, that kind of reflects some of the insights that you've learned through your work
2: so I don't know what it would be uh, to be attentive to life Um, and the you know the idea that philosophy must also be done outside of the um, you know outside of the office of the philosopher so to say so, I think they would have to obviously work out for themselves what attentiveness to life might be. You know, so if I think about the kinds of movements uh, like uh, um, like uh, speculative realism and this idea of how to imagine um, the relations between things uh, independent of the subject. I mean, I understand the... Um, fascinating work in many ways, um, you know, to think about uh, something like the question of mathematics as providing the kind of entry into questions of that sort. My interest actually is the issue that anything can become an object of thought, right? Now, if any, it can be, if you read somebody whose work I admire very much, Jocelyn Benroff, I mean, it's very interesting to me that he can be philosophizing with the, um, uh, uh, you know, with mathematical proof, um, um, uh, or he can be philosophizing with the experience of ordering Risotto and getting a dish which is very nice by itself but because it is not risotto you know he can't quite imagine it to be there's a disquiet he can't quite taste it in in Mm. the way in which he would have tasted it had he not thought of it as risotto right which is like a very quotidian thing nothing dramatic very often you would encounter it but he can make it an object of thought just as he can think about Proof by protocol to be something that can be made an object of thought for philosophy. I think that's the kind of interesting thing to me. And I mean, I do think that a lot of philosophers, uh, when they pay attention to things like Austin or to, you know, Wittgenstein and read it in that register... Even when they are reading, say Wittgenstein's remarks on Goodell, there's something very. Coral Diamond is a very good example of that. There, there is a kind of stability of uh, uh, mode of thinking in, you know, in in relationship to this pretty widely different kind of uh, object. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I, I'm not the one to be able to give um, any. Um, you know, any formulaic answers to, you know, or to say, I know this is the direction. I think that it's a question of how can you be responsive to the world? And if you, then how one asks that question and how one responds to it will, you know, will be the way that philosophy either develops or fails to develop. Mm -hmm. You know, same with anthropology. I think the, uh, a lot of the kind of, uh, Um, You know, desire for philosophy seems to be rooted in thinking that we can find more robust, stable concepts, and somewhere we are failing to see them, but they can see them. You know, which is like uh, that philosophy can become the theory of anthropology, and that, it seems to me, is a direction which is not very fruitful.
1: I can't give a better answer. No, that's, that's, I, that's great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I think our
0: time is up. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you thank for these wonderful, wonderful you. very thoughtful questions.
2: Thank you. Thank you.